you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which is a doozy this morning. From Acts chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 1 through 29 and verses 34 through 43, which can be found on page 918 of the Pew Bible. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the household about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is, un- or that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, two men, uh, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And he walked with him. He went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God appointed Jesus of Nazareth with, Holy, with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing 
doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is the word of the Lord. Please keep your Bibles open to this had it doozy of a passage? Was that <clears throat> Only by length. Well, there may be a few doozy things in here. We'll see. But uh, keep, your, keep your Bibles open to Acts 10, and let's pray as we look together at God's Word. Lord, we thank you uh, that there is life in these ancient words. That your Word is not a historical artifact. It is living and abiding And it points us to the living word, Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we look into your word this morning, may we see Jesus. May we be changed by your spirit. May you be glorified in our midst. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 1933, uh, in response to the economic devastation that so many Americans were experiencing during the Great Depression, President Roosevelt unveiled a plan called the New Deal. It was a massive undertaking uh, with the federal government investing billions and billions of dollars uh, to establish public works, to initiate economic reforms and, and relief programs, all designed to stimulate the economy, to get people back to work, to restore the prosperity uh, of the American people. But when it came down to actually implementing certain key elements, it turned out that this, this promise of restored prosperity was really only for some of the American people. For instance, part of the New Deal was the creation of the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which eventually becomes the FHA, which we have today, Federal Housing Association. And and the goal in creating that was to try and reduce the number of homes that were being foreclosed. So to do that, the federal agencies graded neighborhoods in 239 cities, color-coding them, green for best, blue for still desirable, yellow for definitely declining, and then red for hazardous. And the hazardous areas were deemed unfit for investments by banks, insurance companies, savings and loans, uh, and other financial uh, institutes. And and because they were demarcated with the color red, this became known as redlining. But of course, the redlining of certain neighborhoods wasn't driven merely by economic hardship. It also zeroed in on areas predominantly populated by ethnic minorities. 
And so if you lived in one of those neighborhoods and wanted to buy a home, even if you had the money, you couldn't get a loan. Hazardous. This was off limits to the banks, uh, which meant that oftentimes minorities were unable to buy property and therefore unable to begin accumulating wealth. Meanwhile, their neighborhoods continued in decline. And in some instances, even if a black family, for instance, wanted to buy a home in a white neighborhood, the banks would deny that as well for fear that their presence in that neighborhood would then begin the decline of its value. So this whole prospect, this whole project, it was tantamount eventually to, to basically a state-sponsored system of segregation. That's what came out of it. And despite having been banned 50 years ago, you can see the ongoing impact of that practice today. Uh, much of the segregation that still exists in major U.S. cities, much of the wealth gap that exists between whites and ethnic minorities. For instance, according to the Federal Reserve, white families today have 10 times the net worth of the average black family and over eight times the net worth of the average Hispanic family. So there's this great wealth gap and there's this lingering segregation, and a lot of it can be traced back to this practice of redlining. Uh, three out of four neighborhoods that were redlined 80 years ago are still in economic poverty today. So as great as the New Deal was, as much as the promise of prosperity was touted, it was really only for some Americans at the end of the day. Well, 2,000 years earlier, on the other side of the world, as the early church carried the good news of Jesus forward to uh, new horizons, new areas from Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria toward uh, the end of the earth as they were aiming, they faced a surprisingly similar temptation to treat the good news of the gospel as though it only applied to some people or peoples, specifically to Jewish people. Jesus is Jewish. His disciples were all Jewish. The Messiah is Israel's king. And, and so the temptation was to treat it as a promise for the Jews while withholding it from the Gentiles, the non-Jews. In other words, the early church was in serious danger of redlining the mission of the gospel, of maintaining a covenant distinction and an ethnic distinction that Jesus actually tore down through the cross, not realizing that God's vision for his church is to be a diverse people unified in Christ. And so our passage that we're looking at this morning is, is really a major turning point in the book of Acts, and uh, not just that, but in the history of God's saving activity. Austin showed us last week in chapter 9 that, that we've already seen how God is at work in reconciling unlikely, the most unlikely of people, first you know, reconciling Saul to himself, who had been previously breathing murder and threats to the church and, and persecuting Jesus himself, Saul, so, so God reconciling Saul to himself and then reconciling him to the very church he'd been persecuting. It's a pretty remarkable story. Well, in chapter 10, we see that unlikely reconciliation 
ratchet up to an even greater level, a completely unexpected level for the early church, as it now as the church now expands to include Gentiles, non-Jewish people, without requiring them to convert to Judaism. And it takes a miraculous course of events to bring this about. In fact, our story turns on two divine visions. God's giving visions to two different people, first to Cornelius in verses 1 through 8, and then to the apostle Peter in verses 9 to 6. And then the rest of the story, uh, the rest of the story is the fulfillment of those two visions. First, for Peter, in verses 17 to 13, as the scope of his mission is expanded to include Gentiles, and then the fulfillment of Cornelius' vision in, in verses 34 to 48, as the church itself expands to include Gentiles. And it all starts with an unexpected visit in verses 1 through 8. So while Peter is staying in Joppa at the end of chapter 9, over in Caesarea, which is about 31 miles away, we meet a man named Cornelius. And Luke tells us several things about him. First, he was a centurion of the Italian cohort, which means that he was in charge of one of the six groups of 100 soldiers that made up uh, a Roman cohort, military cohort. So he worked for Caesar, Cornelius did. But he was a God-fearing man. And, and the term God-fearer in the New Testament usually describes a Gentile, non-Jew, who has faith in Israel's God. So he's not a convert to Judaism, but he believes Israel's God is the true God. And, and you can even see that in his worship, how he gives alms generously to the people. He prays continually to God. This is a very devout and religious man. But even with his genuine faith and worship, this man, as a Gentile, remains outside the household of God, according to the Old Covenant. He lives in a red-lined neighborhood. And if you follow the story of the Old Testament, you see that while God's promise to Abraham uh, envisioned blessing all nations, that blessing was carried forward very specifically through Israel, God's chosen nation, the covenant people of God. They were set apart from all other peoples to be God's own. And so under the old covenant, if you wanted to become part of God's household, that meant not just believing in God, but becoming Jewish. That was the covenant. That's how God interacted with his people. So moving out of the Gentile world and converting to Judaism. And, and Cornelius has not done that. But all of a sudden, God answers this Gentile man of faith, his prayers, in a pretty spectacular way. He sends an angel, a heavenly messenger, with very specific instructions to send for a specific man in Joppa who's staying with another specific man who lives by the sea. There's you know, incredible detail that he's given. Uh, and, and to bring him, bring one Simon who is called Peter. And we're not told what God's going to do with this vision. We're not told what Peter's going to say. In fact, the fact that Peter has a message from God for Cornelius is still news to Peter. He doesn't even know that yet. 
But Cornelius has been given this instruction, and he obeys. He finds three of his guys. He sends them to find Peter in Joppa and then to bring him back. Meanwhile, in Joppa, a second vision happens. Peter gets a vision of his own. And whereas Cornelius' vision was very clear, very specific, here's what you need to do, Peter's uh, was pretty confusing and opaque. And Peter was perplexed by it, which gives us comfort because it's pretty confusing to us, too, when we read about the vision that he had. So Peter, while he's praying, and, and just as a side note, notice how central prayer is in this story. Cornelius is praying, and God reveals himself to him. Peter is now praying, and God reveals his plan to him. Uh, so Peter's praying, and he, he becomes hungry. He falls into this trance, as it's described. He has this vision. In verse 11, he saw heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if you're starving, and someone tells you that, that God is going to provide food from heaven... This is not what you're expecting to see on the menu. When Carissa and I spent a summer in Japan several years back, we went out to dinner one night, and uh, when they brought out our salads before the main course, there was an entire baby octopus sitting on top of my salad. And I wanted to say, I didn't order that. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure why that's on the menu. If you ran out of croutons or why this is here, but, but you know... It's not what I had in mind. Uh, and when Peter sees this sheet with all of these reptiles and birds, his reaction is similar. He's like, I can't eat that. Not because he's grossed out, but because everything on that sheet is unclean according to Israel's law. Again, if you, if you go back to the Old Testament and, and the law that God gave Israel at Mount Sinai, part of that law included instructions about clean and unclean foods. So, for instance, Leviticus 11, it, it, the whole chapter is this detail of what's clean and what's not clean and, and what you can eat and what you can't. And it says this is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between unclean and clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. And everything Peter sees on this sheet falls in the unclean category. So his reaction to this command to get up and kill something and eat it uh, is to say as strongly and politely as possible, no way. By no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But look at what God says next in verse 15, which is the most surprising and yet the most critical part of the vision. A voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. What is God saying? 
And what does that have to do with Cornelius' vision and Peter's mission? Is this simply about undoing the old covenant food laws, putting bacon back on the menu? Is that the point? The New Testament does undo the food laws. Mark 7, uh, we're told Jesus declared all foods clean. And so that, that happens in the New Testament. But, but why this vision here? Peter is perplexed. It's perplexing. But he's not confused for much longer. Because in verse 17, the men Cornelius sent show up And the big picture of what God is doing, not just in this story, but in his cosmic plan of salvation, finally begins to make sense. So verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what this vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So God's fingerprints are all over this event. Uh, Not only was it stimulated by two visions, two divine visions, now you have these Gentile strangers showing up in a new town with precise information about where Peter is and where he's staying and uh, it's, it's not like they could follow Peter on Instagram. It's like, oh, he's serving in, in, in Joppa right now and then Google where Simon the Tanner lives or anything like that. God directs them in a very direct and miraculous way. And not only that, he instructs Peter to go with these Gentiles who, who've come looking for him without hesitation or more literally, without distinction since God is the one who sent them. But why would Peter hesitate to go with someone and preach the gospel? Why would God need to tell him to go without distinction? Is it because Peter might be concerned for his own safety? I mean, the church is being persecuted. We've seen that in Acts. Uh, He doesn't know who these people are. What if it's a trap? But Peter has needed no encouragement to preach the gospel boldly in situations likely to get him in trouble. That hasn't been a problem for him. And he's already seen God miraculously rescue him from prison once. So so I don't think it's safety that makes him hesitate. I think it's the same reason he hesitated to eat the food he saw in the vision. According to God's law, these people are unclean. They're Gentiles. They're outside the covenant. They live in a red-line neighborhood. The good news is great, but it's not for them. That's the temptation to limit the gospel's application to only some people or peoples. And all of a sudden... The vision now makes sense, doesn't it? It's not really about food. It's not about the holiness code, clean and unclean. It is about the expansion of the church to include men and women formerly designated as unclean to the people of God so that 
men and women from every nation might become part of God's family. And that makes even more sense when you understand the purpose of the food laws in Leviticus. God commands Israel to make a distinction in their diet to remind them that they are a distinct people. Leviticus 20 describes it like this. He says, I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, for I have set you apart. I have set anything which crawls on the ground, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The major reason Israel had some foods they could eat and some foods they couldn't is to remind them every day at every meal that God had chosen them and set them apart from the nations. They were a holy people distinct from everyone else. So they made distinctions in their diet. But now that the gospel's going to all nations, now that in Christ there's no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile in the economy of God's salvation, these stipulations about clean and unclean food don't make a whole lot of sense. God undoes them. He takes the red line map and he tears it up. As Paul explains in Ephesians 2, speaking of this former separation between Jew and Gentile, he says, For Christ himself is our peace, who's made us both, the Jew and the Gentile, one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man a new Adam, a new humanity in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, thereby killing the hostility. So what Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection was not merely to reconcile sinners to God. It wasn't just redemption for Israel, it was redemption for all nations, reconciling both to God and to one another. What God has made clean, do not call common. The gospel is for everyone. Regardless of your ethnic heritage, regardless of your gender, regardless of your job, regardless of how religious or irreligious you are, the good news is for everyone, and it's the gospel that unites us, not, not based on our common heritage or our achievements or our interests, but, but unites a wonderfully diverse people and makes them one in Christ. That's God's vision for the church, a diverse people unified in Christ. So what will Peter do? What will Peter do? Will he go? Or will he say as strongly and politely as possible, no way. 
And the suspense of the story is heightened a bit when you remember another story with a servant of God who found himself in the city of Joppa with a commission to go preach to the Gentiles the word of God. And because he knew that God was going to have mercy on them, he refused to go. and went the other way. Is Peter going to pull a Jonah? Or will he allow God to reshape his categories, to reject the temptation to redline other peoples and include the Gentiles in the scope of his mission, offering them the promise of new life? When you read the story, you can see Peter's working to overcome this hesitancy a bit. Uh, This is genuinely new territory for him. God tells him to go with them, and and Peter goes down and and talks to them. He still wants to know what they want, why why are you here? Uh, Peter invites them in to be his guests, which is huge, and then he does go with them the next day to Caesarea, which is even huger. But when he gets there, he still feels the need to tell them what a big deal it is that he's there, right? Right? You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But then you see that he gets it. He really does get it because in in the very same sentence he says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He gets the vision. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. His answer was not, as before, by no means, Lord. He came without objection. And and when he reports back to the church in Jerusalem what happened in chapter 11, verse 12, he says, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. He understood the point of the vision, that whom God has made clean do not call common. That was the point. God expands the scope of Paul's mission, excuse me, Peter's mission, to line up with the scope of Jesus's mission, that all nations are to be recipients of the good news of Christ, to truly include the Gentiles and embrace God's vision of a a diverse people unified in Jesus. And so now that Peter's vision's been fulfilled, the story brings us back to Cornelius's vision. And we see that fulfilled in the expansion of the church to include the Gentiles, like Cornelius. And so verses 34 to 38, and it's really a pretty moving scene. Uh, Cornelius, his faith is very much on display. He, he's not just curious about what God wants to say to him through Peter. He calls together his relatives and his friends, like everyone he knows. He wants them to hear whatever it is God's going to come and say through this guy. In verse 33, he says, now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord to tell us. He wants to hear. And so Peter opened his mouth, verse 34. And notice how before he gets to the gospel, he confesses his own paradigm shift. 
Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The gospel, there are no red line neighborhoods in the gospel's advance. And then he gets to the gospel message, verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Notice that he, he fits that little expression in there as he's, you know, he is Lord of all, not just Lord of Israel. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. And so, so Peter preaches about Jesus' life, you know, whatever you might have heard from Jewish leaders about this Messiah figure and his failed attempt, no, God was with him. He did uh, all of this good and the healing of those who were oppressed by the devil. He, he preaches Jesus' life, then he preaches his crucifixion, how they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Then he preaches his resurrection, how God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. He preaches the judgment to come. That Jesus is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. And he preaches the forgiveness of sins through faith, faith in Christ to everyone who believes. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The gospel of Jesus is the power of God's salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And as Peter preaches the gospel in Caesarea on that day, it becomes a day of salvation for Cornelius and his family, a new and a new horizon in God's unfolding plan of salvation as the Gentiles are included in the kingdom of God without having to convert to Judaism. They are full members. And you see that new horizon marked by a recapitulation of Pentecost in the last verses of the chapter. So if you remember back to chapter 2, when, when, uh, how the Holy Spirit fell on the church, filling them with God's presence, empowering them for their mission, and, and the miraculous signs that happened, the uh, speaking in tongues. They were preaching the gospel in languages they didn't even know. That same event happens in Cornelius's living room. God affirms his acceptance of Gentile believers by baptizing them with the Holy Spirit. Pentecost takes a new reaches a new horizon. And, and so therefore, Peter concludes... God has clearly accepted these people. Who am I to withhold baptism from them? The, the mark of inclusion into the community of faith. And so Peter baptizes them, and the church of God expands to become a diverse people unified in Christ. The gospel is for everyone. Regardless of ethnic heritage, regardless of gender or background, and that is just as true today as it was in Caesarea long ago. And so how do we live out that kind of gospel-formed unity as a diverse 
people? What does that look like? And of course, there is so much that can be said on a topic like that. But I think this passage invites us to ask several specific questions of our faith and practice today, both personally and as a church. So first, are there things that divide the church today that shouldn't? Are there things that divide the church today that shouldn't? Skin color, ethnic background, political affiliations, musical preferences, secondary doctrines, stage of life. There there are some things that necessarily create division. You know, when the gospel of Jesus is forfeited, when there's false teaching or unrepentant sin, that's going to create division that has to be dealt with. And, And there does remain a distinction between the church and the world. So even though the food laws are gone, that doesn't mean God doesn't still set apart a people for himself. It's no longer defined by ethnic lines or old covenant lines, but God still sets a people apart from himself marked by faith in Jesus now. But most of the things that divide the church today, if we're honest, probably shouldn't. So are there things that divide the church today that shouldn't? But then second, are there things that unite the church today that shouldn't? Skin color, ethnic background, political affiliations, musical preferences, secondary doctrines, stages of life. It's really easy to find unity with people who are just like me. That's our temptation. To substitute unity for uniformity. Everyone being alike. Whether it's out of a desire for comfort or a a loyalty to tradition or a fear of differences. But what unites the church... What unites the church is not our common stage of life or our common interest in something or anything like that. What unites the church is our common faith in Jesus Christ. Is that the bond we feel when we gather? Like, I may not have much in common with some of you in a worldly scope, but I'm drawn because we're bound in Christ. Is that the bond? There's lots of things we might be similar in, but what's the primary bond that draws us and then that keeps us together when the sparks fly? Our unity will only ever be as strong as what bond we're holding first to. Let that bond be Jesus. Let that bond be Christ. So are there things that unite the church that shouldn't? Third, do we have a healthy view of diversity? In our divided world, it's really easy to view diversity as a threat. Uh, to, you know, it's a threat to the status quo. It's, it's a weakness. We need to circle the wagon, so on and so forth. And, and then, of course, on the other side, uh, because of the rampant division and, and the damage that it causes, it can be just as easy to treat diversity as an idol as an end in and of itself, something to be aspired to at all costs, even the cost of truth. So healthy diversity is not afraid of differences, nor untethered from truth. Nor untethered from truth. It's not the end of the church, but it is an essential means 
to the church's true end, which is to glorify God in Christ. Diversity and unity are held together in the gospel. And then finally, are we passionate about seeing the gospel advance among all nations? If the gospel's for everyone, if God's vision is for a diverse people unified in Christ, then are we willing to devote ourselves to that both locally and globally? The book of Acts is a missionary book because the church is a missionary people. And we're committed to that at Westgate, that, that mission both locally and globally. But none of us are immune from the temptation to limit the gospel's application to some people or peoples. No, nobody here would, would agree with a redlining strategy for, for gospel mission. No, those people are off. We, we know that's wrong. But what does our outreach look like functionally? Are we only reaching out to people who are like us? Do we even spend enough time with people who aren't like us to have a chance to build a relationship and preach the gospel? And what does the church lose when we limit our outreach to those who are within a comfortable arm's reach? What does the church lose? It's a lot to think and pray about. But let our thoughts and prayers be driven by the gospel of Christ. The worthiness of God, the sufficiency of Jesus, the vision of Christ to reach all nations, God's vision for his church of a diverse people unified in Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free there is no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That's the truth of the church. May it be true in our hearts and practice. Let's pray. Gracious Father, would you search our hearts and root out anything that, that we allow to unite us that shouldn't or divide us that shouldn't, would you help us to see the mission of Christ with the eyes of Christ? To get beyond our assumptions, to get beyond our comfort zones, to see the scope of his mission according to his commands not according to our preferences. And Lord, would you burden our hearts to see that lived out among us? God, I thank you that your church is not uniform, that we're not all alike. Not only would that be so boring, we would be so deeply underserved and you would be so poorly represented among us. So Lord, we thank you for the diversity you give your church universally and, and this church locally, we pray that we would grow in that, that we would not be afraid of differences, that we would 
build relationships with those who are not like us that your gospel might spread to all peoples. Lord, would we take your call seriously and would it shape our hearts and would it shape our lives? We need the presence and power of your spirit to make that happen. And so that's our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.